Then he'd be weird. It's all years. 119 something. 50. 81. Oh, and I forgot my Bible. What? Yeah. I mean, I put it over here, so. Half. Open palm. Bend. Open. Allow. Pain. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. Say, when will you comfort me? Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decrees. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? Arrogant dig pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cause. They almost wipe me from the earth. I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your mouth. Nice. Now, do you remember where the word kaf was used recently? Jim used it a few minutes ago. <laughs> Not in that one. See, nobody paid attention to the sermon on Sunday. Everybody slept through that. Kaf was uh, uh, frog and paw of uh, anything that resembles a human hand. The, the bear and the dog. and the, yeah, 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 there you go. Well, that's it. It's a letter and a word. So, yeah. Okay. The uh, sermons has been a good idea. The what? I, the sermons, printing them off. For, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I, I should say that. I'm glad you said that right now. Is that uh, uh, for people online that do watch the sermons, if they're online, you know, not later, but if they're streaming, they always are on the Internet before I give them. So if somebody is at home and they want to follow along with the sermons in writing while I'm giving them, they're already on the superior word. You just go to um, writings, and then you go to Torah, and then you go to Leviticus, and the most recent one will be right there at the top. And you just click on it, and you can read as I'm doing the sermon, and the people in the church have enjoyed that. You know, I print it off for them, or I'll send it to them by email, and, and they follow along, and it makes it more interactive and more uh, useful because you're getting... When mom watches a sermon, if she skips church, which happens a lot... Um, she will watch online. She will read it, and she will watch it at the same time. She says it really helps her as well. So there you go. That's, I don't I'm, see the written one until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. No, it posts every every Sunday. I put it in, and it posts at 10.15 a.m. every week at the same time. So I give it at 11-something, and it's there waiting at 10.15 a.m. even if it's on there, you can copy and paste it and put it onto it. You can copy it and paste it. Everything, yeah, somebody emailed me about the Book of Ruth this past week. She said, do you mind if I... Uh, use the Book of Ruth, and I, I actually sent her my Word file instead of copying it off the internet, oh, which would wow. be too much work. I said, take the whole thing. I'm just here. Right? If it's out there, if I publish it, if it's a photo or if it's anything, it's free. I, I, there's My copyright is you have a right to copy. So, um, Did this guy dry up and look like a leather old Oh yeah, wine like, skin and like smoke. Wine skin and smoke. Does, yeah. Was he all? He was all all gross. Yeah. He, he, was. he was like the mummy on the uh, movie The Mummy. Um, okay, let's see here. Um, uh, got a prayer request from Mark Steffens. He emailed me today. He says he's got eye disease, cat karatakon, whatever, and cornea transplants, and he's got early cataracts, and now his eyelids are swelling. So he asked for prayer. And um, then uh, one announcement before we go to prayer. The Exodus um, uh, sermons are all up on iTunes. 
and Romans are up, but they'll be kept current. But all the Exodus are now up there. So if anybody listens to iTunes, they're up there. And uh, so there you go with that. Charlie? Yes. Charlie, my, uh, our daughter-in-law, um, Dory, she yep. got pecked in the eye by one of their chickens. Oh, no. Yeah. More eye problems. I know. It's wow. to her eyeball. Oh, really horrible. Weird. All right. We'll, so, we'll go yeah. to the Lord in prayer about Another that. Eye. Heavenly Father, you know the uh, prayers that are out there. Dory with her eye problems and this gentleman that also has his eye problems. And certainly Paul, who we're just longing to see back in church one of these days. And it, it's just got to be very difficult on him to not be here. But uh, he's on our hearts daily. And uh, it's good to get reports from him about how things are going. But it, I know it's just tough being stuck at home and not being able to get out and do the things you want to do. So we lift him up and we lift up Tom and uh, that uh, whatever... Uh, avenue he's pursuing right now for his particular cancer, that uh, you would be with him through it and that it would be successful and bring him back to a state of full health. And Lord, we got all kinds of people that have emailed this week that uh, have family problems, that have physical problems, that have just one thing or another, and uh, the list would be long if we were to mention them, but we lift up this body as a whole and each person in it, and we ask that you attend to their needs according to your wisdom. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to come into this building and to uh, share in your word, to study your word, and to just participate in the wonders that it reveals to us and to our lives. We thank you for this, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Speaking of her, there she is. Yeah. She didn't skip this week. She this didn't skip good. this week. Oh, wow, yeah. that's very good. Mom. Absolutely. Such a hard time. Yeah, Mom. Well, you, you know. You, Got to figure all the love and tenderness she gave me over the uh, years growing up. I need to repay her somehow if I can do it with a little jab, you know. Okay, we're in a Romans 6, verse 18. 18, which is the end of a paragraph. All right, hang on a second here. Let me uh, move that. Let me get this up here, 6, 18. Yeah, just start at 15. That's a good spot to 15. start. 15, slaves to righteousness. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves or bondservants, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching to which you have entrusted. This begins 18. You have been set free from sin and have become <coughs> slaves to righteousness. Righteousness. Or bondservant. Uh, or bondservant. That's right. Slaves, bondservant. Bondservant is a person that works without recompense, maybe not necessarily a slave, but it generally means the same thing. You're, you're uh, in bonded to somebody, and, uh, and Paul claims that title for himself. He says, bondservant of Christ. And I believe Peter does as well. Uh, and that's the attitude we all should have. But 6.18, let me read that again. And having been set free from sin, very similar to what you have, you became slaves of righteousness. So if you peek ahead, which you should never do, I'm kidding, um, you'll see that the rest of the chapter continues to discuss the issue of slavery. The personification of sin and righteousness allows us to understand our state more clearly. Sin was our master, okay, and Jesus spoke of that. And the apostles write about the same thing. These Old Testament concepts, you know, the law of the Hebrew slave, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, first thing that it mentions, law of the Hebrew slave. And uh, what's that the second thing? Anyway, let me go there so I don't 
uh, tell you wrong, but it's very soon after the giving of the Ten Commandments. I know you've got the uh, earthen altar, and you've got uh, Exodus, uh, let's see here. Um, one sec here. 20. Just don't want to be wrong on that. Um, uh, 20. It says um, they trembled. Earthen altar. Okay, that's right. And then it's 21. Right right after the earthen altar, then comes in the, if you buy a Hebrew servant and all that. So the law of the uh, Hebrew slave. All picturing exactly what Paul is writing about here in one way or another. So um, personification of sin and righteousness allows us to understand our state more clearly. Sin was our master, but we were brought out from under it and have moved to a new master, that of righteousness. And Christ is our master. He is righteous, so you can kind of equate the two there. But sin has a source, just as righteousness has a source. Sin came about through obeying the lies of the devil and rejecting the truth. Once again, go back to 1 John 3, 8. The man was manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. So unrighteousness and sin is found its source in the devil. And uh, taking this in its logical form, then we were once slaves to the devil, but we have now become slaves of God through the work of Christ. Sin no longer has power over us because the power of the devil is defeated through the cross. And that's a perfect lead-in to what I want to tell you about the cross right now before I go do a life application with that. Is, uh, i got a shirt on here. This is a grace cross. It says grace and it's a cross. And um, uh, I didn't know this, but my friend designed this. And uh, yeah, and she uh, sells them. So if anybody wants a Grace Cross to give to somebody as like a, a Christmas present or a birthday present or something, email me. I will give you her site where she designed this, and she's a very nice girl. And uh, she lives out in California. But anyway, um, uh, I, I, I just loved it. I just couldn't believe it. And I had to know. Did you? Uh, Which did verse? You, the Ephesians two verse eight. Okay is the Grace Cross. And anyway, so, uh, and she's got other things that she sells, but if it's something that you say, hey, I'd like to get one of those for this person or that, you can get them in all different sizes. And obviously I wear an extra, extra large, but um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, uh, and they come in different colors and stuff. So if you want one, just let me know. And so back to the life application from that first, very short analysis of it. The wages of sin is death. death. There you go. As believers in Christ, we have been set free from sin. And thus we have been set free from yeah. death. The wages of sin is death. We've set free from sin. We're set free from death. Now, obviously, we're all going to die unless the Lord comes first. The Lord has promised in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that that will come to an end and we will be raised in newness of life. But um, uh, that's uh, something that we are going to face. That is not what the Bible is speaking about. It's not speaking about our physical bodies. Okay, there is a time when our physical bodies are going to be never to die again. It's speaking about our spiritual reconnection to God. The wages of sin is death. On the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. He lived 930 years, right. and, you know, and he probably did that on the second day of his life or something. It was very early on. Obviously, he wasn't speaking in the context of physical life. Now, people will, just so you know, you're going to hear this from somebody eventually, and I want to dispel that right now is that some people will say that is speaking of the um, Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3 8 that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day and therefore Adam died at 930 years old and so he died on the day that he sinned that is not a correct interpretation of that passage he died literally the moment that he sinned against God the spiritual connection was lost and that is what that's speaking of okay instead of uh, uh, 
physical death, which is a result of that spiritual disconnect to God, which is now resolved. The physical isn't, but the spiritual is, and the physical will be resolved when Christ comes to make all things new in us as believers. What's that? Who? Adam, is he going to, I don't understand. I mean, okay, he died. Yeah. 900, is he going to be raised again? If he believed in the promise of God, which he did, which is we found don't. in Genesis, okay. it, it, before the naming of Eve. Let's go there really quickly. You asked the question. No point in having you, uh, uh, you know, wondering about it. It says, um, Genesis uh, what? Uh, we're in chapter 3. Then it says, um, you know, on the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. And then he uh, turns around and he curses the serpent. Verse 15, he tells the woman what's coming. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He said, oh, that's still to the devil, but speaking of the seed of the woman. Then to the woman, he says what's going to happen to her, which we're going to be dealing with this Sunday. Purification after childbirth. Nine verses. Watch that sermon. You're going to learn something. I guarantee it. Wonderful stuff there. All picturing the work of Christ. Okay, so um, I'm going to greatly multiply your sorrow and conception, and pain you shall bring for children, blah, blah, blah. Then to Adam, he curses the ground for his sake, right? So that's all of that is out of the way. And in verse 20, it says, And Adam called his name, his wife's name, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Okay? Right there. That one verse right there shows us that he demonstrated faith. And only after he did that, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. That was in response to his act of faith. Why is it an act of faith? Because the Lord made a promise that life will come from the seed of the woman. And Adam caught on to that. He understood it. And by faith, he was granted the covering of Christ, which is pictured in verse 21. So yes, Adam will be raised, and the line of Adam is carried through in Genesis chapter 5, and then it goes down into, you know, the um, line of, uh, what's his name, Abraham, and then the line through Isaac and Israel, and, and uh, then down through the people of Israel. But he demonstrated faith, and only after demonstrating faith, then he was given the covering, a picture of what Christ is going to do for us. So yes, we will be with Adam someday. So talk about the uh, power of grace. The power of grace right. is astonishing. And he started the sin ball rolling. And yet he's forgiven. Right. But you got to figure at the same time, if he didn't start the sin ball rolling, then it would have been a nightmare. Just think it. Because somebody eventually would have sinned, if, even if he never did. And it, it, the, the whole thing had, if you think it through, and it, it, it would take too long for me to give you uh, my thoughts on it without sitting down and contemplating them for a while, but he had to fall, and it had to happen very quickly. If not, it would have made no sense in the what God was going to do through Christ. I mean, even before, at the very beginning of it, God announced to him what he's going to do, right? And in Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In God's mind, he knew it was going to happen, and nothing else would have made sense. It's bad for us because we're the recipients of it, but to God, he knew it was coming, and he had already devised the plan in his mind before he spoke anything into existence. In verse 22, it goes on to say that the Lord's God said, Behold, a man has become... Like one of us. us. Yeah, to know good and evil. So he's, he's gained the knowledge of good and evil. Can't have them around here. We've got to take away access to the tree of life because a, uh, a being that is sin-filled, that is eternal in nature, if he got a hold of the tree of life, being filled with sin, it would have been a cosmic calamity. Just imagine, I've said this before, 
in what evil Hitler wreaked in just 50-some years of life. And think of the world, only 1,656 years, and the Lord had to destroy everything on earth because people were so wicked with these long lives. So God's plan is perfect, and what we're looking at right now in Romans is showing us the cure for that because we will not be evil with knowledge. We will be slaves to righteousness. And right now we're struggling with that in this body of death, but we will not have that body of death someday. And because of that, we will be completely free from being these wicked beings that could live forever. We have access to the tree of life. It is Christ. That is what the tree of life is. Just like everything in the Bible, it pictures Christ. Every single detail. Sunday sermon, same thing. Uh, The one that I typed up this morning, or not this morning, typed up, uh, I get the uh, photos and the graphics ready for the sermon four weeks in advance, and today I did um, the diet, uh, Laws of Leprosy Part 3, same thing, all pictures of Christ, all the way from Part 1, 2, and 3, all pictures of Christ, and, and what did I type, what did I type this week, I don't remember, I think it was Exodus 15, I may have, did I complete Exodus, I'm sorry, Leviticus, did I uh, complete Leviticus 15, because if I did, what does that mean? If I completed Leviticus 15, this I'm so tired I can't think right now. But, um, uh, hang on, one has to certainly. Out, so no, I don't think I have. Um, anyway, um, it, it, when I finish typing the uh, sermons for uh, Leviticus 15, which I think will be next Monday, then guess what? That means the Monday after that I get to type Leviticus 16, and I've been waiting for that since we started Leviticus. It's the Day of Atonement. Oh, wonderful pictures of Christ and proof that the law is fulfilled in Christ. These people that say, well, the, the rapture is going to happen this 23 September because that's a picture of the rapture and that's never been fulfilled in Christ, wrong, okay? People have to think that one through. They need to think the issues through. All of the law is fulfilled in Christ. It is done. When he said it is finished, it's finished, okay? So we're going to see that with the Day of Atonement. We're going to see it in about 10 weeks because that's when that sermon will be out, but I get to type it very soon. Anyway, we'll go on. Life application for the verse we just looked at. The wages of sin is death. As believers in Christ, we have been set free from sin, and thus we have been set free from the power of death. Eternal life, because of the work of Christ, is an absolute guarantee. Don't let anyone tell you that Christ's work is not fully sufficient to save you. We were talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses earlier. It's not sufficient. We've got to do something. We've got to work our way to heaven. Mormons. Everybody says, I believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ, but then their doctrines teach otherwise, okay? Many churches teach otherwise. It is all-sufficient. We do not believe here in limited atonement in the sense that uh, Christ only died for some people and that they will be elect and that uh, we believe in uh, absolute, uh, complete, total atonement for all people potentially but only actually it is limited atonement because of the people who have received Christ. But in that state, it is complete atonement, full atonement, all-sufficient atonement. There's nothing that we need to do in order to be saved except receive what Christ has done. Okay, there's one gospel. It is found in the work of Christ alone. It's not found in the work of Christ plus Charlie Garrett doing something to merit God's favor. It's not found in the law of any church that says, you know, Church of Christ, you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ in order to be saved. I don't know if that's still their doctrine, but it was for many years, and I believe it still is. And many churches add in something. It's something. You take especially Catholicism. It's always uh, by faith plus. It's by Christ plus. It's by the Bible plus. They add on plus to every single thing. There's no plus. 
It is sola scriptura, the Bible alone. It is sola fide, by faith alone. It is sola gratia, by grace alone. All right, sola Christos, uh, by Christ alone, and sola Deo Gloria. Is that right? Yeah, anyway, Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. The five solas, all right? We don't add anything to what God has done. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, 619. 619, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Say that again. Yeah. <laughs> I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity <coughs> and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Leading to holiness. Okay. Paul begins with an idiom of the time in this verse. He says, I speak in human terms. This way was a way of saying that what he is telling them and the way that he is saying it is done in order to make the argument easy to grasp. I'm telling you in human terms. We use idioms all the, all the time. And, you know, we use so many idioms in the English language that we don't even realize we're doing it. It is such a common part of our speech. And as I said, if you want to teach somebody English from another country, just teach them idioms. Because that's all they hear all day long. We say things that we just take for granted and they have no idea what we're talking about. People will come here that are trained in English in their country, and they know English far better than you and I ever will. They're trained in the, the, the grammatic and the, the uh, you know, what do you call it, the, the structure and the uh, uh, how a sentence works mechanically. And so they know, like Will Groban, he's a perfect example of this. He knows Hebrew, or Greek, I should say. He took Hebrew too, but I think he focuses on Greek. He was taught in classical Greek, you know, in uh, Bible college. Dallas Theological Seminary. He knows that better than probably anybody that speaks Greek in Greece. Why? Because they just speak it. They don't know the mechanics of the language. They just know how to speak it, where he knows how the language works. But he can't speak Greek, right? If somebody walked in. I did this one time. I went up to the Greek professor at um, where my daughter went to college, which was in Chattanooga. It was... um, um, What's the name of the college there? It's Bible College and, um, come on, Chattanooga. Anyway, yeah, the Choo Choo College. Anyway, it's very famous. It's, uh, uh, she went there, and uh, the Greek teacher, she said, oh, Charlie, I want you to meet the Greek teacher. And I walked up, and I said, Katalibenitealinika, and he had no idea what I said to him. Not one idea. It's the most basic thing that you can ask in Greek. Do you speak Greek? And he had no idea what I asked him because he knows the mechanics of the language. He knows Greek beautifully, but he has no idea the, the, the spoken language, right? And that's how languages work. You learn one or you learn the other, but usually you don't learn them both. In grade school, we learned how the sentence worked a little bit, and then we forgot it four days later because it's not something that we need, right? Okay, idioms. Idioms are where you learn the, the, the mechanics Thinking. of uh, yeah, the of language. the thinking of the language, not the uh, structure and all that. Anyway, that was a little bit of a diversion, but uh, um, yeah, I know it's going to bother you and me both until I remember it. What is the and, name of it? My nephew went there. Isn't that funny? I've just got a total blank on it. My daughter was there and, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, it's a great school. It's in a Chattanooga, it's, Tennessee. It's and uh, Chattanooga. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so here we go. Well, he's speaking in the idiom, and it would be like us today saying, let me say this so even a child could understand let me speak in human terms. Let me say it like a child could understand. As noted in the previous verse, Paul has used the personification of sin 
and righteousness to help us more clearly comprehend the state and circumstances in which we find ourselves. Okay, he's personifying it so that we can grasp what he's saying. The people of Rome would clearly understand the symbolism of slaves and masters. Absolutely, they, they, everybody there had slaves or was a slave or their neighbor had one. It was just something that they grasped. Okay, it's like today in America, we know that somebody has a boss, he's gonna go to work and if he doesn't show up on time, he's gonna be fired. This is something we know. They understood this terminology very simply and that's why Paul says, let me explain it to you in a way that you'll understand. If a person is a slave to Stevius Romanus, then he would present himself to Stevius in a distinct way as to his rightful master. Stevius likes foot rubs at noon each day, and so the slave does this for Stevius, right? However, the slave is bought by Sergius Maximus, who finds foot rubs vulgar and a bit too tickly, too, for his liking. And so what does he do? The last thing that the slave would do would be to grab Sergius's foot at the noontime and start rubbing. You're right? Okay, you are a slave to whom you belong. All right? And so if you're a slave to righteousness, then you should do what righteousness wants. If you're a slave to sin, then you do what sin wants. That's what Paul is making this very simple, basic thing. Okay? Um, it would be contrary to his new ownership to go up to Stevius or Sergius Maximus and say, here, let me rub your feet. He's going, oh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like that. It's tickly, okay? So Sergius would be displeased and there would be consequences, especially if the disobedient foot rubs continued. I've told you not to do that. I'm your master. You're going to be in trouble. And that is what we have in Christ with sla uh, being slaves of righteousness when we once were slaves of wickedness and of sin and the devil. Okay, He has what he wants us to do. And by nature, we do those things. Now we've committed ourselves to Christ and we want to do what Christ asks of us. Where do we, how do we know what Christ asks of us? That's right, right here. If we do not know this book, we cannot be pleasing to Christ. I'm sorry, somebody becomes a Christian and they attend a charismatic church and they never read this book. I don't care how long they attend that church and how many things they do in that church, which the pastor says are great, whatever, they're not any farther along in their walk with Christ. None, okay? Rolling around in the hallway and making up a bunch of nonsense tongues and all of those kind of things is not going to lead you to holiness. You need to read this book and I was talking to somebody, I won't say who yesterday, but I was talking to somebody that, uh, some of us here now, and they said, we, we've kind of strayed, not in their, their love of Christ or anything, but they've been hanging out with some people that have caused them to kind of stray from the way that they were as a family unit, right? And immediately the verse came to mind and I said, good company, I'm bad company corrupts good character. Mm -hmm. If you just hang around with people that do not have the same priority as you, your character, whether you want it to happen or not, is going to be corrupted. Nobody is immune from that. The more time you spend with believers, the more time you spend in the Word, the closer you're going to be to God and to holiness and righteousness. Anybody disagree with that? No. Can you think of going to a person's... I, I go up to Massachusetts, or I did up until last year. I used to go up to Massachusetts every single year for one week, actually 10 days, and I would help my father. Okay, It's out in Right here, let me show you where it is, just so you know where I'm talking about. This is Massachusetts, and it goes out like this. This is New York, and this is Connecticut. They are literally within two miles of New York and five miles of Connecticut. That's where they are. It's in the most remote, remote part 
of all of the country, as far as I'm concerned. When they somebody has this particular disease where they can't be around any modern things with chemicals, they say, move to this area of the country. That is it. It is in the middle of nowhere. Only Up until just a couple of years ago, all they had was RFD delivery, rural-free delivery. Yeah, I mean, it's nowhere's built. Okay, yeah, still. And so, anyway, I go up there, and it's what you would consider God's country, right? All of the towns are named Canaan, they're named Bethel, and all of this stuff in the general area. I'm up there for 10 days, and when I leave, I am beside myself. I might see 15 people the whole time I'm there, and they're flaming liberals. Everything that comes out of them is literal wickedness. And I, I think, how can, you, how can you survive in a place like that as a Christian and hold your values? I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm beside myself. If I stayed there for a month, I don't know what I'd do. You know, I'd probably go out and vote for, you know, the next Democrat president or something. I mean, it, it just, it's like an infection. Bad company corrupts good Maybe character. You change them. I tell you what, you try. Really? You try. They all know I'm a preacher. They all know that I don't yeah. want to hear their nonsense, but okay. there ain't no change in their minds. It, it, it is amazing how far those people are from what is right. And yet they, you know, they have a church there and they go to church and a gay pastor or, you know, somebody that wears the gay thing and supportive gay pastors. And or oh it just, it, it is astonishing out in the middle of absolutely nowhere how people can get so far away from the Lord. Anyway, and the thing about places like that, everywhere you go in the area, all of those towns with those Christian-named or Bible-named towns, the very oldest building in that town, and the one that is right in the very center of the town, is the church. They were established as Christian towns, and they have just completely apostatized. So, anyway, bad company corrupts good character. Long winters. Long winters, that's right. Okay, so this is the thought, the foot rubs and not doing what the new master wants. Okay, we have the old master, we have the new master. That is what Paul is trying to explain to them in human terms. We were slaves to sin. Sin liked uncleanness. It liked dishonesty. It liked sexual perversion. It liked gluttony. It liked all of those things that are contrary to what the Lord says in his word. Because sin was our master, we presented ourselves in this state of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. However, a new master has taken over righteousness. Okay, he is our master now. He doesn't like his foot rubbed. Are we gonna keep rubbing the foot? No, we're going to do what righteousness wants. Now that we have this new master, we would be completely unwise to present ourselves to righteousness in a way that was contrary to what it wanted. Okay, rather he demands that we present ourselves as slaves for holiness. That is what Paul writes to us. That is what is inspired by the Holy Spirit for his pen to write those things, or actually what he did with the book of Romans is he dictated to somebody else, and then that person wrote. So there's another step in inspiration even there, because the guy could have written something wrong, couldn't he have? You know, I mean, it's like English. We've got a word, uh, sale, right? If you're a bad speller, it might be S-A-I-L or S-A-L-E, right? I mean, it could be. We got all kinds of words like that. I mean, how many people know there, 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 and there? I know. Yeah, and even me, when I'm typing sometimes, I'm just typing, and I'll go back and I'll proofread what I'm reading, and I'll say I type T-H-E-R-E when I meant to type T-H-E-I-R. 
I know, it's just I'm typing and my fingers are doing what they're doing. And your so, spell check won't fix that. No. spell check isn't going to fix that. that was, sometimes Microsoft has that one with the green line under it that says, hey, oh. you, can, you can have that option too. Grammatic. The red line says something is spelled wrong, the green line is grammatics, yeah. Okay. But it can be very annoying because you can have a sentence that is correct and then you can't get rid of that green line. So anyway, um, the whole point is that uh, it, inspiration goes down to the whole process. Mm -hmm. Talk about inspiration for a second because it's on my mind. Is that you take somebody like Luke, right? Mm -hmm. Was he an eyewitness to the things that happened? No. no, not in Acts he was, but in the book of Luke he wasn't, right? He wasn't an eyewitness at all. And yet he says at the beginning of his account that he's researched these things, other people have talked about him, and I'm going to give you my account. How did he get that information? Interviews. Interviews. He talked to people. He got documents. He attained those documents. It's, you can read the account of Luke, and you know that he went and got a document of something. Whether it was handed to him by Mary or whether he went down to the temple and said, I'd like to see the genealogy, he got that document, right? His actions, when he did those things, were inspired by the Spirit. Think it through. His actions were inspired in order for him to come up with the Gospel of Luke because we have an inspired Gospel. It didn't just happen by him sitting in a room and the Lord moving his hand the way a charismatic would think you do. He actually went out and did something. And those actions were inspired. He's prompted in his spirit to go over and get this genealogy or to talk to this person that worked in this part of uh, the temple complex or something. So inspiration is something that if you want to read or study something that will just blow you away, get a book on how the Bible was inspired by, not by a charismatic, okay? Go to somebody like Norman Geisler or somebody that, that has thought these issues through and you will be so impressed at the work that people have gone to to think about the doctrine of inspiration and how this logically one thing must follow after another, okay? Wonderful stuff. You know, if you have time for that, you will, I assure you, you will appreciate learning how inspiration of Scripture came about. It's the same thing as finding out how do we know what text is cor correct and how which text is corrupted, but we can tell where the corruption is and why it's corrupted, and that's a great study as well. That people devote their entire lives to getting us a knowledge of how we can know that this book is reliable. Inspiration is a wonderful part of that. Okay, so... Uh, the owner of a slave has the power of rule and authority over their slave. Would anybody here disagree that Christ is our ruler, that he has full power and authority over us? Right. Right? 100%. Okay? And before you came to Christ, what does that mean? He's not. He was not, which means that? Devil. The devil. Okay? When people, when you're talking to people about <coughs> faith in Christ, you need to tell them something. You need them to understand that there is only one of two places. There's not 15, Buddhism and Islam and all of these different things, and Christianity is one of them. That is incorrect. All, everything apart from faith in Christ, everything on this planet has one master, and that is the devil. There is no exception. You are either in the devil or you are in Christ, and there is no exception. Abraham was in Christ potentially because he believed God's promises of the coming Redeemer. God said something, it's pointing to the Redeemer, therefore he was in Christ in that. But all of the people that Abraham sp spoke to, I'm sorry, they were in the devil. They belonged to the devil, and that is the state of all people on this planet. And it's something that if somebody can grasp that, if the, because most people can't anymore. They think that, well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so hard. yeah, I'm just a guy and the devil doesn't have control of me. I'm not a, a Christian, but I know that I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, 
Sorry, you're not in God's eyes. You are not. You are either in the devil or you are in Christ, okay? It's an important precept if you can word it properly for people to understand. There's only one of two, one of two avenues and there is no other. There is no other way of identifying who you are as a human being. The devil or Christ. The thing, too, about that is, is that people that go, well, you know, God is just going to make me walk this really tiny path. And oh, yeah. And it's like, and I don't want to be, I don't know, behoven to him. It's like, right. you're already behoven. You're already behoven in a much tighter path. And that's it, the yeah, symbolism of the Bible, exactly what you're talking about. The symbolism of the Bible is that we have a very wide path when we are in the devil. We've got a very wide path, and it leads to very, very narrow confines, okay? Whereas with Christ, we have a very narrow path, but it leads to the open yes. spaces of heaven. And you see that all the way through the Bible. David writes about that again and again. Lead me to the broad places and things like that. Christ speaks about it. You know, there's the narrow path and there's the wide path. And then you've got the, the confines of hell where there's gnashing and, uh, of teeth and, the, you know, all that. But you think of heaven and it's broad, it's open. You can stretch your arms. Your mind is free of all of the things that confine you in the devil. And there's only one of two options for you. Only one of two. So, very good example. Um, so, uh, I've said this before, I'm going to read it again. The owner of the slave has the power of rule and authority over their slave. Disobedience may result in punishment, imprisonment, or death. And it is so with us now. As a saved believer, if we turn from righteousness to sin, capital R, capital S, from righteousness to sin, through sexual immorality, for example... We may catch a disease resulting in pain, confinement from others in society, right? Time to go to prison because you've done something, you've broken into a bank, or even death, right? Break into the bank and the guard happens to be there with a gun and he pulls it out and shoots you, right? When you turn from righteousness, the big capital R, to sin, the big capital S, you may be in Christ, but I'm sorry, you will pay the consequences for it in this life, okay? Rather, he demands, um, where was I? Um, uh, righteousness was abandoned. <clears throat> Sin did its evil work in us. Okay, that's what Paul is telling us. There's choices to be made. In Christ, we still have choices we can make. I know without a shadow of doubt, I don't know about any of you except what I believe. I believe that Burke is saved, okay? But I don't know that for a fact. But I know that Charlie Garrett has called on Jesus Christ. I know that he is my Lord, and I know that there is nothing that will ever change that. But... I do things that I should not do, and I do them every day. I think things that I should not think every day. This is what happens in life, okay? I am not being a slave to my Lord when I do that, okay? It, it is, the two are incompatible. But if anybody says they don't struggle with that, I will never believe them, not on my life. You know, even lying in your deathbed, thoughts are going to go through your mind of something that you did when you were 20, and you said, wasn't that not? You know, it just happens. We're human beings. This is the war that Paul talks about in chapter 7. Anyway, some people have much less than others. I, I'll grant that. I, you know, I probably... Uh, who was it? J. Vernon McGee, wasn't it? The one that said that uh, if you knew what I'm... Uh, yeah, if you knew what I think, you wouldn't want to be my friend or something. If you knew me like I know me. Yeah, if, yeah that's it. If you knew me like I know me, then... And I think that all the time. I'll be sitting up there in the pulpit preaching about something from Leviticus, and I'll think... I just can't believe I just had that thought, you know? If you knew what I know about me, you would not want to be my friend, okay? 
I just, yeah, and if you smelled my underarms today, oh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I knew Linda was going to do that. <laughs> Had to give her a jab there. All right, okay, so sin has done its evil work in us, and it separates us from that close fellowship with the Lord, okay? Having said this, it is important to understand that righteousness, the big capital R, is still our master. We can disobey our master, but he is still our master. That is the point that Paul is making in this particular section. We have a new master. The old master has no right and no authority over us, except what we authorize him to, you know, when we move towards him. But we have a master, and that will never change. He is our master. We have moved to him, okay? I give an example of Stevius and Sergius again. Stevius was the master. This guy is working for Sergius, or is owned by Sergius now, right? But he sees Stevius in the... Uh, the um, shopping mall, and he says, I want some of those papayas, and I'd like you to carry them home for me. Can he do that? Yeah. He could be disobedient to Sergius, who said, make sure you hurry back with my uh, mangoes, right? But he has a choice to do that. He can go, and he can serve the other master, but he's legally under this master. It doesn't change his ownership at all. Right. Everybody see that? Ownership is what Paul is speaking about here. He is speaking about who is your master, Okay, Just because you have a master doesn't mean that you can't be disobedient to him. Very important to understand this because if you understand that your master is Christ, he's your master. It's never going to change ever again. That is what Paul is logically telling us. It is a one-time-for-all-time thing, eternal salvation. That flows from Paul's pen in almost every verse that you read that he writes, and people continue to miss it. They, they struggle with it. They struggle with all kinds of other doctrines. And some doctrines there are, 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 can be hair-splitting doctrines, right? But eternal salvation should not be something that people struggle over. He is your master. He has bought you with his own blood. Mm -hmm. To say he's not your master means that his blood was insufficient to continue to save you. Impossible. There's nothing else that can save you, and there's nothing that can rob you from it. It is impossible. Okay. It's a good analogy. The only thing is, is that the slave had to say, I, That's right. I want you. That, well, right. in, in Christ we right. do. Right. He gives us that choice. He does. That's right. He gives us the choice. But once the choice is made, it is made. That's absolutely right. I do not believe that Christ forces his ownership on anybody. He potentially has died for everybody. He has given everybody the opportunity to receive that ownership, but we must choose it. Hence the word believe, hence the word accept, hence the word receive. I don't care how you translate it, you have to do something. And it is excluded from the law of works. What was that, Romans 3.17? Faith is not a work, okay? Um, so we have um, righteousness is still our master. Just as the slave remains the property of Sergius, regardless of his conduct, after being purchased from Stevius, so we remain the property of our new master. We have moved from the rightful ownership of the devil <coughs> to that of Christ. For this reason, we are expected to present ourselves, as Paul says, to Christ in the manner which is pleasing to him. He is a gentle, he's a caring, he's a wonderful master, and as our creator, he knows what is best for us. Okay, we are the ones that went under the devil. He knew what was best for Adam, and he knew what would have kept him from all that trouble. And think of the heartache if Adam, you know, we love our children, and if something happens to him, it breaks our heart, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If Adam could look at every one of his children, which is billions and billions and billions of people over the past 5,000 years, and if he had the same heart for each one of us that he had for his own children, imagine the pain that he would feel, right? 
Well, that's what Christ feels for us. He feels that for every single human being that exists. He feels that pain. When we get down to our great-great-great-grandchildren, by then we don't, you know, oh, I'm sorry you lost her. You know, I, I feel bad for you, honey. But it, it, the, the connection isn't there. But with Christ, it is always there. It is right there with him because he's right there with all humanity. He came to buy us back from the devil, okay? So, uh, life application on this verse. In Christ, you have a new master. He has certain expectations of you which you are expected to fulfill. He asks us to be obedient because he knows what is best for us. Endeavored, what you were just saying a minute ago, you know, oh, it's so narrow. I don't want to follow Jesus because there's all these rules and limitations on us. Those rules and those limitations are meant for us because he knows what's best for us. He will not say anything in his word that is not what is 100% best for us. He's not going to do it. He is going to tell us what is best for us because he created us and he knows us intimately. And if we deviate from this word, it is we who will suffer. Even though it feels good at the moment, it isn't good. Okay? So, he knows what's best for us. Endeavor to live in righteousness and not as if you were still a slave to sin. Can we help you, ma'am? Look at that. Showing up for Bible class. 45 minutes late. I can't believe it. I'm heartbroken. I'm kidding. She she is a busy person. 2 Peter 2.16 2 Peter 2 1 Peter 1 Peter 2.16 Go ahead, read it. Okay. 1 Peter 2.16 Hang up here. I'm right there. That's it. 1 Peter 2 and then verse 16 says As free, that's right, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Exactly. As, you know, the Bible never contradicts itself. There are things that may seem contradictory until you understand what God is saying and from what perspective. But uh, I was talking to uh, Bruce, the guy that opened us a couple weeks ago, that Messianic Jewish guy. Um, I was talking to him yesterday, and um, we were just talking about things. And uh, one of the points that I have in the sermon coming up is that the Bible will never cause you to do something to contradict something else in the Bible. And you think about... Um, uh, America, and we have this law, and we have this law, and this law, and if you obey this law, you will violate this law. There is no time that you wake up in the United States of America that you are not guilty of breaking the law, because if you're not doing one thing, another law contradicts it. That doesn't happen in the Bible. God's laws all fit so that every single thing, we're going to see it in the uh, purification sermon coming up on Sunday. I'm not going to tell you what the example is right now, but if you think of it, she's asked to do something, and then they're asked to do something here, and they Fit. They don't contradict each other. Everything that God has laid out for the people of Israel matches so that there is no time where they will violate his standards unless they voluntarily do it. Never by his will. Okay, That is not true in any other country or any other household, as a matter of fact. Dad gets angry and he says something, and then the next day he says something that's the opposite because he wasn't angry, right? That's not going to happen with God. Everything he does for us will be perfect. Okay, verse 620. And they teach oh. that at Tennessee Temple. Tennessee Temple, thank you. That's a, I, 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 you know what? Tennessee Temple University, why couldn't I think of that? Anyway, oh gosh. Okay, thank you. All right, 620. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Okay, that's very close to this one, so I'm not going to read it again. This is a simple truth. It's a very simple truth, which was looked at in verse 619, and which continues now in verse 620. All right, a slave has one master, and therefore the ruling authority of that master is absolute. 
Before we received Christ as Lord, we were slaves to sin, and we were free from the mastership of righteousness. Once again, that does not mean, I don't want to say that we were completely depraved in every sense when we were under the devil, but we had complete uh, freedom to be that way. Nothing hindered us from being completely depraved. There are people that are in the devil that are walking down the street right now and somebody drops uh, uh, her purse and somebody bends over and picks it up and says, here, this is for you, instead of grabbing it and running away with it, right? People do things that are good all the time, but that is not pleasing to God because they are slaves to sin because they belong to the devil, all right? It's the same thing with us. Take that example and put it in the opposite like I did a minute ago, and we can be in Christ and we can do bad things, all right? The idea here is that you are completely free to sin in the devil. You are not free to sin in Christ, but you can go either way under either master. Okay. Before we received Christ as Lord, we were slaves to sin, and we were free from the mastership of righteousness. But when we moved to him, we were freed from sin. There's no law. The law is annulled in Christ. We are in Christ. We are free from sin's penalty, from sin's power. We're not free from sin's presence, but... We have the ability to do these things. All right? Error in the mind of man is easily introduced during an evaluation of these verses, though. Got to understand that. There are people who are not Christians, as I just said a minute ago, who do really good stuff for other people. They do good stuff for their community, for the sake of animals or the environment. Right? Everybody's got their agenda, and they're, I'm going to save the world. The global warming people are completely deceived by this agenda, but they think I'm doing something good for the world by, you know, joining the global warming party, okay? This is what people do. I'm going to do something good. I'm going to merit God's favor somehow or another. And, of course, there are Christians who fail at any or all of these things, right? So you've got a guy that helps his community. He's out there doing good stuff all day long, and you've got Christians that sit home and don't do anything for their community. You've got... Bill Gates, who's given billions of dollars for AIDS research, and I'll bet you, I may be wrong, but I'll bet you that not one person in this room has ever given $100 for AIDS research, other than through your tax dollars, which were involuntary, so you can't claim that, okay? Right? But he did a lot of good for AIDS, and we've done nothing for AIDS research, okay? How does that fit? Okay? How does that fit? These people in Christ have come, and they haven't done anything really good. Their lives are actually changed very little after coming to Christ. And people say, if you don't show good works, then that proves you're not saved. My question is always the same when somebody says it. You read that commentary a million times a year. If you read commentaries, you'll hear good works stem naturally from saving faith. Okay? Here's my question to you. What works? I read that commentary a thousand times, especially from Table Talk magazine. My question is, what works? You tell me what works will prove that I'm saved. Anybody? Is it helping out little old ladies across the road? Is it giving to AIDS research? Is it doing any of the things that we talked about that other people are doing, helping out in the community? Vacuuming the floor at the Superior Word, Burke? Because he does it every Thursday. What works prove that he's saved? You tell me. What works? Belief. That is the only work that matters to God. If you come into the superior word and you vacuum the floor in here because you want me to be your friend, you get no credit for that. If you go out and give a million dollars to AIDS research because you think that uh, uh, the people in Africa are going to give you, uh, a, a, you know, a prize or something, or they're going to make you, uh, you know, 
what do you call it? They give you a free doctorate if you do something at some colleges or whatever. Mm -hmm. If that's why you're doing it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove anything. The only work that is satisfactory <coughs> to God is faith. So if somebody sits home and he talks to God all day long and doesn't do anything for anybody else on this planet, he is pleasing to God because he is demonstrating that God is there and that he is thankful that Jesus Christ saved him, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe he can't leave his house. Maybe he's, you know, a houseophobe or whatever you call it when you don't want to go out. That would be the opposite. A houseophobe would mean you never want to be home. Anyway, um, uh, but you see what I'm saying? Just because somebody doesn't do something is no indication of their salvation. When somebody gives you that line, all I want you to do is remember two words. What works? Mm. You tell me what will satisfy you in my works, and then I'll tell you what will satisfy God, and it's my faith in him. Typically, it's the plate. Yeah, the plate. Yeah, that's right. They get, yeah. When they pass the plate at church, that proves that you're saved, right? Well, you, you made mention of Table Talk magazine. So you, that's, a, that's the Calvinism. Yeah, that's okay. R.C. Sproul. So, does he is he saying you have to? No, no, no. He has commentators that write commentaries, oh, okay. and they just say it. You know, okay. one guy, the main commentary every day. They have a daily thing, just like I do. Right. They have a daily thing, and that is done by a guy named Burke Parsons. He's like the associate pastor over at uh, St. Andrew's Chapel, where R.C. Sproul preaches. He was one of the Backstreet Boys, right? Oh. And he met the Lord. So if you go and look up Burke Parsons and the Backstreet Boys, there he is. He's singing along. He's a rock and roller. And then he met the Lord. And now, But he is educated in this theology. And I read his commentary every single day. Now, on the weekend, they have somebody else give a commentary. It might be this person or that. And then they have at the beginning and the end, they've got other great commentaries. I mean, they're, they're good things. But they're always salted with the idea that you have to prove that you're saved by good works. Yeah. And my question, every time I read that, I'm sitting there every morning reading, and I say, what works? Now, you tell me what works right. will prove that I'm saved. John 6, 20. John 6, 20. Go ahead, read it. <laughs> Go ahead. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Absolutely. I, I could say that every single class, and it, it is never-ending well of truth. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one who sent him. I sit at home, and I don't do anything for anybody else in this world, and I talk to God about how grateful I am about Jesus, or, you know, that's what I do when I'm taking out the garbage. Every single day, I'm talking to the Lord, and guess what happens today? I'm taking, I'm separating out the garbage, and I'm feeding the uh, seagulls with all the hot dogs and stuff the 7-Eleven throws away, and there's 35 cents in a bag, and I said, thank you, Lord, and I'm saying that as thanks to Jesus. That's worthy of a work, because I am acknowledging that it came from him, right? Everything, every good and whatever blessing comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, Right? It, where do you give your thanks? Where, where do you give your praise? Where do you give your adoration and your attention? How much time do you spend in his word? Because if you're doing it just simply to make mom happy, there's no reward for that. But if you're reading it because you really want to know God, that is a work of faith. Okay? The question is, when they ask that, what works? That's all you need to ask them. People say that all the time, and it is the most nauseating thing that I can think of. Good works stem naturally from saving faith. What works? Yes. Charlie, doesn't uh, when you're a Christian though, and you and you have believed in the Lord, doesn't He sometimes call you to a Sure, that's right. I mean, I He raised David up from a shepherd to be. That's right. The and there are people that have callings. I knew that I wanted to be a preacher, right. and I knew that I didn't. Here's the problem. I talked to Bruce about this yesterday. Okay. Here's the problem with becoming a preacher or a pastor at a church, okay? If you don't have experience, nobody's going to hire you, okay? 
and if you uh, don't, in other words, you want to be a preacher, but you don't have experience, you can't get hired. And so that was the dilemma that I went through, right? That's all I want to do. I do not want to be a youth pastor for obvious reasons, right? Everybody here knows that. Okay, I, I have no musical ability at all. That's why when we start church on Sunday morning, I sit in this chair right up here, and everybody else is packed in back where Thomas because they don't want to hear me singing, okay? I have no musical ability. There's nothing that I could do in a church that would be productive. I have a calling that I want to tell people about this word. That's all I know. And so he raised me up for that. How does that come about? Turtle Beach, right? That's how it came about until the Lord provided a building. But this is all that I want to do with my life. And if I don't do this, I'm going back to wastewater, right? Because it's the only other thing that I really enjoy in this world is wastewater. I mean, as far as work, I love my wife. I enjoy her, but yeah, and I enjoy all of you. But anyway, I really like the wastewater job. You know, if I could do both of them, it's such a rewarding field. If you're, you know, if somebody is watching online right now and they have somebody that wants to get into a job and they like chemistry, biology, you can get dirty if you want, or you don't get dirty, you become a wastewater operator. I love to get dirty. I ran the place, and yet when it was time to get into a tank to fix it, the employees watched me work, because I love doing that kind of stuff. It just, you know, it, it's just a wonderful, rewarding job. The pay is very good, but once again, you gotta catch 22 with that too. Nobody wants to hire somebody as an operator that does not have a license, but you can't get a license unless you are an operator. You have to go through uh, an apprenticeship, right? And so it's a catch-22. It's very hard to get into the field. But once you're in, you can get a job anywhere on this planet. You want to work down in the Caribbean, somebody has a job for you. I guarantee it. You want to go to Israel, they have wastewater plants and they need people. Okay? I just say that is my plug for anybody that's struggling with what to do. But, yes, we all have a calling. The Lord puts things on our hearts. And some people's calling is to stay home and to talk to the Lord all day. All right? They don't want to go out. I have no problem with that at all. No problem with that at all. Okay, let's go on. Um, let's see. Slave error in the mind of man is introduced, which I just said. And, uh, of course, there are Christians who fail at any and all of the things that we talked about. And their lives change very little after coming to Christ. And what does this do? This sets up a false belief in people that Christ doesn't really make anybody holy. The problem with this is that it is dealing with the slave in regard to the master, not the master's authority over the slave giant difference there. The example from 619 was that a slave went from his previous owner, Stevius Romanus, to a new owner, Sergius Maximus. Regardless of how that slave acts, he has become the legal property of Sergius Maximus. Have you ever seen the pictures of slaves? As bad as it was in America, we had slavery and we can't deny it. Have you seen the pictures of slaves with their backs completely beaten? And you see it down under the picture, it says this slave ran away again and again and again. He would not do his work, okay? He was beaten. And a slave that did what he was told to do didn't get beaten. Nowadays, well, it used to be that if you didn't do your job, you would get fired. Or they, you know, in the military, they'd take your pay, right? They'd say, okay, you talk about a, a bad idea. This is just funny. In the Air Force, I don't know how they run it now, but when I was in the Air Force, if you were um, financially irresponsible, right, you wrote a check and it was a bad check, that is a bad stain on the government because you are their employer. So what would they do if you wrote a bad check, you were financially irresponsible? They would withhold your pay. Can you imagine that? It's like going from, but anyway, you, you may actually not do what your master wants you to do. But when you are in the military, the military owns you. You are property of the U.S. government. You have no rights except what they give you. And that is a legal binding contract. 
If they say you can take your wife, that's fine. If they say you cannot, that is their decision. If they want to send you to um, Thule, Greenland, where there's nobody except things that spin around in the cold all year long, that's what you do. If they want to send you down to Okinawa, where you can meet somebody beautiful like my wife, that's, it is their choice. You are property of the U.S. government. Same thing here. You have become the, the, uh, the, under the ownership of a rightful master. That's what the Bible is speaking about right here with Christ and the devil. It doesn't mean that you will obey him, but that's what <coughs> legally has now happened. Okay? It's what Paul is speaking about. Slavery to Stevius Roman, Romanus is synonymous with freedom from Sergius Maximus. Slavery to Sergius Maximus is synonymous with freedom from Stevius Romanus, right? It's one or the other. Now simply change the ownership titles and we're gonna say that sentence again. Slavery to the devil is synonymous with freedom from Christ. And slavery to Christ is synonymous with freedom from the devil. Everybody see that now? You use a human example like Paul is doing and then you just transfer it to Christ. You are under Christ's authority. Paul is writing a dissertation about righteousness, starting on Romans 1.1, and he is methodically showing you the process of our redemption, of our ownership, of our new authority, everything. He is very methodical. He doesn't make mistakes. He very carefully takes that huge amount of knowledge that he had of the law, and he breaks it down for us in terms that we can understand. That's what he's saying here. It is the ownership which has changed. And if people could just get that through their head, instead of saying, good works, prove your salvation, on every commentary you read from that guy, if they would simply think the issue through. It does not prove anything. What are you going to ask them when they say that to you? Two words. What works? What works. You tell me what works. Right here. That's the only work that is going to prove anything, and it's nobody else's business. It is nobody else's business. When somebody says he does not have good work so he can't be saved, it is not their business. He belongs to a master, and Paul says elsewhere, he will stand because the master will have him stand. All right? There is no fault in Christ. He is our master. He gives us the right to make our choices in this life, but it proves nothing. The only thing that proves anything is this internal change that happened, and I have made it. I have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not something that I'm saying. It's my glory. That's not what I'm saying. It is Christ's glory for offering it. The offer is made. I have done nothing to deserve it. I simply said, I am tired of this master. I'm tired of living in this life of sin. And how many people do you see that have come out of alcoholism and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm just tired of this life? They've been in drugs or they've been in jail. They've been in all of these bad places and they say, I need to get out of this. And somebody, they hear somebody talking in another cell about freedom in Christ and their whole life has changed, right? What he does after that point is totally up to him and the Lord and nobody else. What works? What works? We don't want to make these mistakes of saying, well, you're not in this box and so you're not saved. And, and this a lot of times it. fruits and works right. are confused. That's right. The fruit of the Spirit and works of the Spirit, and they, they, they jumble them up. That's right. The fruit, every single fruit that Paul gives you will be a fruit which is based on faith, right? Whatever fruit of the Spirit he has, think about them doing that without faith. As I said earlier, I, you know, I go into the church and I, I uh, you know, clean off all of the chairs once every three weeks because they get dusty, okay? And I do it because I like the girl in the front row. And I know she's going to see me doing it before church. There's no reward in that. 
but it could be the same thing that Paul speaks about in another context that if you do it, then that's a good fruit, right? You're helping out the church. But I'm doing it for the one that died on the cross for me. Right. So that it, it always comes down to that. When somebody says this to you, just say what works and have them process what they're saying. Doesn't prove anything. And it all comes down to motive. Motive. That's right. Yes. What is the intent behind what <coughs> you were doing? Is it for Christ or is it not? Okay. So uh, uh, read that one more time. The slave is now a responsibility to change his life and his habits to the new owner. If he doesn't do it, it doesn't change the ownership. It's his responsibility to do it, and the only way he's going to do that, as I said, is here. Any person that does not study this book, and I guarantee you, if there are, we'll just pick a number, there are 10 million Christians in America right now, okay? I bet you that 9,700,000 of them have not spent much time in this book, okay? They have not learned how to do exactly what Paul is telling us to do, and therefore they're not being obedient, they are not being obedient to the Lord, does that change the fact that the Lord has bought them? No. That the ownership has changed? It doesn't change no. anything. <coughs> it changes absolutely nothing. He is still the owner. That comes down to rewards and losses. I frittered my life in Christ away, and I stand before him with empty pockets and empty hands, right? Or I did everything I could to know his word and then to apply it to my life in faith. Whether I went out and did a bunch of stuff or not, I applied it in faith. That is what that is what works. Any other works don't matter because they weren't in faith. Okay. So um, uh, the title to the deed to our slave has transferred. He now belongs to another. Life application. Oh, we got time for another too. Who are we going to please? Our master, who so loved us so much that he gave his life to have authority over us. Or our old master who cares so little about us that he desired our destruction. Right? If you think it through like that, who do I want to please? Because I'm giving him all of my attention, and yet that's all he wanted was to destroy me and take me to where he is going to be for all eternity. Okay, think it through. Everything the devil had to offer, everything that he had to offer was pleasing on the outside, and it was rotten on the inside. Everything. There's not one thing that he offers that is pleasing both on the outside and on the inside. Nothing. Okay? Why would we want such fruits when the life Christ offers us is pure and good from the inside out? Everything he offers us is pure and good from the inside out. Right? Isn't that right, Tom? That's right. Uh, 100%. Yeah. I, you know, when I uh, talk to people about uh, some of the people I know in life, I have to tell you that... Uh, the one that gets the highest accolades, probably of any person I know, is sitting right back there in the back corner. He is the most wonderful Christian in my mind. He shakes his head and he says, oh, you don't know me. It doesn't matter because I know me and I know you. And I, I, uh, I, I just, I've never known anybody so giving, so willing to give of himself as Tom Alley. Anybody. I've never known anybody. It's an honor. Okay, 621, go ahead. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of. That's it? For me. Oh, okay, well, I got oh, one sorry. Go no, ahead. No, no. That was the other side. Ah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me say it again, yes. <clears throat> what benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. There you go. Those <clears throat> things end in death, okay? Just so the people online know, Tom doesn't attend this church, so I'm not asking for big ties or something when I pass the plate back there. 
I just, I, I know the man. You have a plate? Yeah. yeah oh, no plate. No plate in this church. If you ever see a plate in this church, there's a problem. Okay. Well, we got plates back there. Yeah. We got some plates. Yeah. What was, what was the uh, uh, bunt? Bunt cake. Oh, my goodness. We had one of those last week, and John and Kathy brought it. Oh, the it's, um, that started out with uh, Kyle out in California ordered some for us. and. Yeah. Those are really good, aren't they? I mean, they'll bring tears to your eyes. They're so good. Wow. But, you know, they're expensive, so we're only going to do that like once a month. But they really are good. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, 621, you read it. Paul's question is asking about having fruit, something you just brought up a minute ago. Not so much the quality of it. He just asked about having it. The quality naturally goes along with what the source of the fruit is. Once again, what works? What is the motivation? What is being demonstrated with the fruit? Okay. This can be seen in Jesus' words, which are found in Matthew 17. Okay, let me take you there. And he says, Matthew 15, 16. And then he says in verse 16, So I brought him to you, or I, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Right? Elsewhere in the Bible, it's noted that thorns and thistles end up in the fire, just as those who bear bad fruit will end up in the lake of fire. These agricultural concepts are given because anyone can figure them out. No one would pick up a thorn bush and start chewing on and expect to get um, delightful nourishment from it, okay? Unless that's what you eat. Camels eat thorns, I think it is, and uh, what were the tall things? Giraffes, I think they eat thorn bushes. I'm talking about human beings here, okay? And so Paul asks his readers to think things through. If you were a slave to sin, of course only bad fruit would result. It is impossible that a tree which is by nature bad could somehow produce fruit contrary to its nature. When Adam Clark uh, Adam Clark states it this way. He said, God designs that every man shall reap benefit by his service. What benefit have you derived from the service of sin? Wonderful question. Let me read that again. God designs that every man shall reap benefit by his service. What benefit have you derived from the service of sin? The answer is nothing good. Nothing. All right. The answer is that the bad tree will, of course, bear that which is bad. You know, I think I must have read the wrong passage in Matthew, even I though it, so. it pertained. I'm talking about agricultural things, and so I'm going to go back here really quickly, and I'm going to go to 16 and see if it's in there. It's, I know exactly what I'm looking for, but I'm not going to spend all day on it. I've referenced the wrong wrong uh, Matthew. I'm in Mark. It always helps to get into the right book of the Bible. If you see the one I'm thinking of, though, it's, it might be like Matthew 16 instead of Matthew 17. But I realize now I'm looking for an agricultural application in um, Matthew 16. Um, all right, that's 17. Matthew 16 and 16. Okay, no, and then maybe... Uh, oh, here it is. Um, yeah, I know I gave the wrong... I'm, I'm looking at every plant which my Heavenly Father is uh, not planted will be uprooted. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. I, I wrote down a reference, and obviously I wrote down with my eyes on the wrong place. And I apologize for that, but it's... One of them with an agricultural um, application. Obviously not the one I looked at. 18, 16, um, two or three witnesses. Definitely not that. Anyway, um, I'll what, think of... What word is on his... What word is what? 
is there a word that you remember? I have no idea. I write these things down and I don't pay attention. So, and it could be Mark too, like Mark 17. But no, there is no Mark 17. So don't go there. Um, you know, somebody, somebody. Uh, 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 I'm sure it's just a uh, what do you call it when something's like folklore? Um, it's not a real true story. But anyway, the pastor says next week. Um, uh, next week's reading is Mark 17 verses 12 through 19 and please oh. read that and then the next yeah. Sunday says did everybody read yeah. who read it and they all raised oh, their hand and he said there is no Mark 16 oh. yeah. Yeah. Anyway. yeah don't lie in church folks anyway um, okay I read the wrong passage and I do apologize about that but it's one of the agricultural themes that uh, um, uh, Jesus words are about having fruit okay so I'll find it and we'll go through it next week and we'll just redo this Bible study anyway um yeah. Something about tree, cutting down the tree. Um, if it doesn't bear after um, a year, um, let me fertilize around it. And then after that, if it doesn't uh, bear fruit, then I'll, we'll tear it up. Okay, that's the one I'm thinking of. Anyway, we won't read it now, but okay. The answer is though, that the bad tree will of course bear that which is bad. It's going to happen. The reaping then is one which is intended for death and destruction. Uh, Matthew 7. Go ahead. 7. I said 17. I typed in an extra one. Thank you. 7, 16, and 17. Go ahead. Read it. Okay. Read it loud. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs and thistles? Even so, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. Go ahead. Read a couple more verses. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There you go. <clears throat> Therefore, by their fruits, you will know, know them. them. Okay? By their fruits. And what is he talking about? He is certainly not talking about doing something that Bill Gates does. Just because he's got a fruit that looks good does not mean it's a good fruit. It's the motivation behind the fruit and who it is dedicated to, to the Lord. When somebody asks you about works, you ask them what? Well, what what works. works? That's right. What works? Because it, it, it just gets drummed into you. You keep reading these commentaries, and if you read enough commentaries, you're going to read it at least once a week. And you, I have to ask myself every time I read it, now you tell me. Because they, they skirt around the issue, and they just say, well, see, that proves you're not saved. Well, how do you know? Yeah, right? What, what I, you all that does is it builds up neuroses in people when they read things like that, and they think, I wonder if I've done enough. Yeah. Have you received Jesus? then you've done enough, okay? After that, everything you do is for your master. But if getting to heaven is not about works. It's about what he did, okay? Anyway, we'll go on. If we are a slave to... Oh, wait a minute. I want to read. The reaping then is one which is intended for death and destruction. We will see this concept reintroduced in chapter 7. As I said, and I'm going to read you one verse. For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Okay? And what fruit is it? It's fruit that is not in faith. It is fruit which is of the devil. Okay? That's all he's speaking about. If we have become slaves of righteousness, meaning we have been saved by Jesus, then we would continue to en entertain the life of sin. Is that what we would do? We've been saved by him and we want to continue in the life of sin? Now, in your head, you might you might think, oh, I just want to, ah, uh, right? And Paul is going to talk about that in chapter 7. He's going to give you the ah, uh, because he struggled with, with it like any one of us will struggle with it, okay? But he's making a, a theological discourse on what we should be doing and how to get to that point. And the answer is this. 
That is how we get to that point. It's the only way we're going to get to that point because we're not going to think how to become good Christians apart from what God has given us as our instruction. It is not possible. Okay, Anybody that thinks that they can be a good and sound, faithful Christian without understanding the Word of God is deluding themselves. Okay, This is where it's found. Um, okay, let me give some more commentary here. Um, if we are a slave to sin, then our passions will work in our members to death and think of whatever sin you wish. Anything you can think of. In the end, it always leads to death because it is destructive to the body and to the soul. But more importantly than physical death is the spiritual eternal death, which is a result of being a slave to sin. The life of sin is ultimately a life of death. If we become slaves of righteousness, meaning having been saved by Jesus, that's my question which I asked you a second ago, would we continue to entertain the life of sin? It's contrary to our new nature. It's completely opposed to it. Those things we were ashamed of when we, when we called on Christ are no less shameful now. So don't allow your life and your actions to be returned to the very bondage from which you were purchased. Okay? And like I said, everybody is going to struggle with this to some extent. Some people more than others. We know good, strong Christians that have gone and done things that have landed them in jail. Okay? It's happened. I was in a church one time, and uh, the pastor of the church says that uh, he uh, makes a trek up to, I think it's Rayford. What's, what's the Florida State Prison? Dark. Dark. There's another that begins with an R. Um, Rayford, Rawling. Uh, anyway, there, there, there's one, that, it, I, and he goes up there. It's in the north of Florida, and um, uh, he uh, goes to visit a pastor that killed his whole family. Yeah, he killed. He just went berserk and killed his whole family. And he says, if he's saved, he's saved. You know what? He made a mistake and he did something and he's going to pay for it for the rest of his life. And in Florida, I don't know if he's on death row or not, but uh, he can get old Sparky. Do we still use old Sparky? I think so. I think so. Good. That, man, that's, that's the one. Anyway, um, but you know what? If he did that and he was saved by Christ, and he is saved by Christ. It's hard for a lot of people. It's very hard grasp. to yeah. to grasp that. Yeah. The love of God which is found in Jesus Christ to say that how could you... Once again, perfect example. The example of examples. Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Mr. Eat, your neighbor. And he came to Christ and he is forgiven. He is forgiven. And that is so hard to process that, so that God could love us enough yeah. to do that. Did you have a question? I was just going to say, I was reading in... in uh, about David and Solomon and about the temple being built and when God was making a promise to Solomon about he would be a father to him yeah. but he said if he sinned or if he failed to do as he was supposed to he would punish him with a human hand that's right an oppressor that's right so he would suffer on this earth you know with consequences of his whatever choice he made that that's right. right but so I, I kind of marked I thought that was interesting that he actually pointed out that he could punish him with Yeah, let me let me read that to you right now, but I'm glad you brought up David because somebody might be listening and really struggling with what yeah. I said about that pastor killing his family and still being saved. Yeah. Guess what? David did exactly what I'm talking about. He did, oh, yeah. he did it with somebody yeah. one of his prime generals, right? Yeah. And then as a result, his son died, which means implicitly he killed his son. His actions caused yeah. his son to die, so he killed his family as well. Right? And his actions killed his other son because the war that came about in his family was caused because of his actions. So whether it was directly or not, David killed his family, and yet he was so loved by the Lord, despite what he did, 
400 years after, uh, after his death, yet for the sake of my servant David, I will protect Jerusalem, right? That's how much God can love a person that is as faulted as David or that pastor that killed his family. If somebody emails me about that and says, well, you don't know what you're talking about. That guy's going to hell. They don't understand grace. Yeah. They don't understand this word right here. The grace. Okay, let me see here. Um, um, here it is. Here's the verse you were talking about. When your days are fulfilled, and when you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. Who is he speaking about? Jesus. Is he? He's speaking about Solomon and Jesus. Yeah. Okay. He says, think of, think of it right now. He shall build a house for my name. What is Jesus building right now? He's building a house out of the people of his church, right? We are temple. We're stones in the temple. We're living pillars in the temple and all these things that uh, the Bible says that we are. He's building us into that. He says, I will be his father. Oh, he says, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did that happen to Solomon? No. No, no but it did through Solomon. So his kingdom was established forever, just like David's. And also Christ's is forever. Okay, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. It does not matter if Christ committed iniquity or if he paid the penalty for the iniquity, the penalty went to him. Everybody see that? He's speaking about David, his own son here. David, not Jesus. 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 I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men if he commits iniquity. Did Jesus commit iniquity? No. 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 But did he accept the iniquity of us? Yes. There you go. That's what he's speaking David about. If he commits father. iniquity, Father, I will take what they deserve. And so right. Right. vicariously, he took our iniquity. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. That is speaking of Jesus. Okay. It may not sound like it until you think it through. I am willing to take the iniquity, which means he committed it right. vicariously. Mm -hmm. Even though he didn't, I will never say that and don't accuse me of saying that. But he just, took the penalty for us. Okay? I, I wasn't saying Oh, no, I'm not saying you. I'm just saying anybody. I'm just saying that Christ never sinned. He had no sin of him, but he took the penalty for right. our sin. And that is what he's speaking of because his kingdom is established forever because of that. The house that he is building is us because of what he did for us. We wouldn't be in that house if it wasn't for him. I would not be a living stone in that house. I would not be a pillar in the temple if it wasn't for him. Everything in this book speaks of Jesus, everything. But sometimes it's hard to understand, and you think, I want to make sure I'm very careful with how I word what I'm saying. Because if you say something wrong, the guy that's listening goes down a bad path because you made an error. Brothers, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that those uh, shall, receive, shall the receive the stricter judgment. Thank you. It's very scary if, if you care about this word to make an error. Even if it's unintentional, you will be held accountable for it. So, yeah, Christ committed no sin. No sin, but he took the penalty for it. Okay, so, um, life application. We'll finish up right here. A spiritually alive being living in a spiritually dead way is a self-contradiction, isn't it? We're spiritually alive. We've been regenerated by Christ because of faith in him. I'm a sinner. I want to be saved. I don't want to be in this pit anymore, right? He saves me. And then I continue to do what he saved me from. It's a contradiction. Let me read it again. A spiritually alive being living in a spiritually 
dead way is a self-contradiction. If you have been born again by the Spirit of God, then you should endeavor to live in newness of life. You will bear fruit from your labors. What type of fruit will it be? Right? Will it be of faith? Will it be something that is rewarding in and of itself because you did it in the name of Christ? Or is it going to be something that... It, it, it satisfies nothing. Ah, oh, that girl at church is so pretty. I'm going to go in and I'm going to vacuum the floor so that she'll notice me. <laughs> Think it through. Everything you do, do for the glory of God. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Give me just a second here to put this away. And there. I will not be here next week. You will not be here next week. You're going to be in Baltimore, I'll bet. No? no? You too? Chicago. No. Oh, oh, Chicago. Oh. I know. Uh, all right. Heavenly Father, we pray for Jim, who's going to be in Chicago next week. We certainly pray that he'll be safe and uh, uh, he will just uh, be able to tell somebody there about the glory of Jesus that is willing to listen. And uh, we thank you for the testimony of the people in this building right now, whether they attend this church or not. They are all willing to come and listen to an evaluation of your word and to give input into it and to talk about it and then to, I know to apply it to their lives. Nobody would come here and want to hear your word unless they wanted to then apply it to their lives. And so help us to do that. Help us to have works of faith and works of righteousness for your name's sake, regardless of what they are. If they're just as simple as talking to you throughout the day, we know that you're going to be pleased with that because it demonstrates we believe you are there and you are a rewarder of that faith. So thank you for that. And Lord God, we have all of the people that we pray about week after week, and we'll just highlight Paul again because he's such a wonderful person that is just struggling so much right now, and we just ask that you build him up in his heart and in his mind and give Elaine the patience with him that uh, needs to uh, get him through this and the two of them working together as husband and wife to uh, come through this in a happy way and to be restored to full health. And we pray this, that you will be glorified and that they will be edified we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this class today, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back that baby up. Oh, hang on a sec. Let's see here. Oh, I see. That's doing that. We're going to go to break. Okay. It's going. It's going. Okay, there we go. We love you guys. Have a wonderful week. Please take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye, Bonds. The what? Oh. You got a CD player, don't you, Burke? Okay, listen to that. One of them is uh, Sproul talking about Matthew something or Mark something, but the second half is really good. It's, and it, Sproul's is good, too, but the second half is just wonderful. Yes. You're going to cover James 2 in this thing. Show me your faith by your works. By your works, 224? Oh, yeah. I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to.